A forest is a home, writes Diana Beresford Kroger in her wonderful book, The Global Forest. All the forests of the global garden are homes to microbiota, insects, birds, mammals, and plants. No one species is better or worse than the other. They are equal to one another in a chain of connectivity. Each bee, each wolf, has the right to dream or die, has the right to live a life, its own particular life of wonder. And it has a right to that home until the end of time. Diana Beresford Kroger is a unique blend of rigorous scientist, reverential philosopher, and Irish bard. She understands profoundly the intertwined life of a forest, from the root fungi that swap carbon among the trees to the sophisticated sexual dance of birds and insects and flowers. Her writing bursts with information, but also with pain and joy and reverence. In the 1950s, forests covered 30% of the Earth's surface. By 2005, only 5% remained. When a forest is felled, the hormones from the trees enter the water and thus enter the animals who drink the water, including us. Our broken forest, she writes, is in our hearts and in our children's tears. Diana Beresford Kroger. I thought, as I was reading your book, you invoked the figure of the Seanachie from your, from your Irish childhood, the figure who uh, traveled from town to town, farm to farm, yeah. talking about things that couldn't be seen. And it seemed to me that the whole, your whole book was, in many respects, very Celtic, but talking a great deal about things that couldn't be seen but that were nevertheless important and that we should know about. Yes, I, I, I used the trick of the Seanachie because in old Ireland, in the old Celtic culture that you also are part of, it was very important in the oral history of your country, Scotland and mine, to transfer important knowledge from person to person and then from generation to generation. Um, that important knowledge was really a kind of a key knowledge for survival, for the survival of the Scottish and survival of the Irish. And all of the things that they needed to have and to know and to remember was tied up in the story of the Shanachi. And the Shanachi, in your terms and in my terms, was an inherited storyteller coming from the ancient Brehan system where the lines of the story are inherited from father to son to son to son down many, many generations. And they were used as a mobile advertising, almost a form of internet throughout the Celtic system for the movement of knowledge from one system to another and the education of people from one generation to another. And I, I really thought that this book, The Global Forest, was something that is like a prayer book of the forest. And I wanted to take very complex science and reduce it down to everyday language, to washing up the dishes, to wiping the table, to the knowledge that is very necessary for all of us to have in our pockets and in our head. And I used the trick of the Shanachi. And the Shanachi puts in something like, Ishel Raftari and Phile Landochis is graw, Lesulagan Salis les Hunus gan graw. And we have in our language, we have Shakespeare, which is Raftri and Phila. 
and he is gankunus gankral without quietude and without without really the anger in his breast ledokaslan and and without light in his eyes and so you would throw that line of poetry into the people and they would all know this poetry they would all recognize it and some of them would it would stir in them a feeling of interest and the interest generated the mind towards what the shanachi had to say so i wrote it in that form that the shanachi through the poetry into the people and that is my shanfakel those are the words which are the old words of wisdom that starts each of the 40 essays and that technique has worked for thousands of years and i thought that technique would work in this book i think it does i think it works very beautifully and uh, and and i was struck by the fact that a couple of points you talk about the relationship between art and science and um as as ways of perception as one sometimes leading to the other and so forth and it also occurred to me that that the shanaki would be talking about things like the unseen world the world of the fairies or the world we can't any longer remember the world of film cool um and you were talking about the conversations between plants and the the, the whole interaction between the um, the beings that make up the forest which we also can't see and generally don't even understand is there yes in we now belong to the church of the holy dollar the church of the holy dollar is the church of consumerism and that really swallows people's lives their souls are sipped up in this form of consumerism but we are greater than the product of our whole we also have our spirit and we also have our soul and we have our mind and the church of the holy dollar does not cater to the spirit and to the mind and to really the arenas of compassion that humankind is 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 greatly endowed with so going to going back to the idea of the shanaki with the spirit the spiritual world and and all of nature all of nature has has a form of spirit which is something that was understood in the olden times but today scientifically we understand it and the word is called dna the living world has got the coil double coil of dna in the genome of each cell cellular tissue that you have and each cell of each leaf each leaf of each forest of all of the mammals of the world all of the living creatures of the world and really we do not know something we do not know how dna is played you can think of dna as being played like a piano like mozart but the music of mozart comes from between the notes it's not the splash 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 the music comes between the notes and all of the living things of this planet that we're living on has that invisible form of a lack of notation it's almost like black and white photography and the negative of black and white photography and we don't see it because we see the consumer world we don't take the time to sit back and meditate in what is around us and 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 take the solitude of meditation and think about that spiritual world that is there which is such an important world because we are not just the consumer item we are not just flesh and blood 
we are greater than that. And in the old world and in the Aboriginal world and in all of the Aboriginal worlds all across the, the whole of this planet, they understand that. But we've wiped it out because what we have right now is we have four and a half mil- billion people. Half of the population of the world are urbanized. And all they look at is a wall of concrete. All they look at is are the streets of the city, the concrete, the flashing lights, and they no longer see the trees. The other half of the world have some knowledge of the trees, and that is getting increasingly lost. So there is a a polarity in society where you have on one hand this consumerism, and on the other hand you have this dreadful call for nature where we are going on on really on the tip of the balance of harmony. And we are about to destroy so many things that hold us in a web of life. And through that, really, the thread, the stitching of DNA, we must take that 4.5 billion people out of the cities and stitch the DNA into the trees again and make them fall in love with nature. Because then we will, then we will rescue our own souls. And our own, our own lives. Yeah, well, in many cases, yeah, yes, yeah. our own lives. I was also, I was very struck by the fact that, that um, I had never thought of chemi- chemistry as a mode of communication, but the book is saturated in that sense of the uses of chemistry to convey information, to receive information, to prompt things to happen. Could you talk a little bit about that sort of web of communication that... Um, You've described so well. The natural world uses the mode of, of chemistry. It's an invisible world of chemistry, a chemistry between trees, but indeed there's chemistry between you and I. I hate to tell you, you produce pheromones, <laughs> I produce pheromones, and right now we are attracted to one another as people. We, you have your Celtic lineage, I have my Celtic lineage, and we actually understand one another. Our, our DNA in some way is shaped similarly. We do understand one another. The same thing for the forests. The same things for it works for the mammals of the world. But you and I produce pheromones. We have, I have estrogens and all of the estrogen systems in my hormones. You have testosterone and all of the male hormones in your system. But the trees have the same thing. The DNA for a tree is, is very, very like our DNA, but the manufacturer of, of their chemistry goes into auxins, goes into abscisic acid, and all of these hormones in trees produce growth, produce that huge bulking that takes place for the reception of sun. The one difference between you and I is that you have hemoglobin, and your hemoglobin molecule is almost similar to the molecule in the tree that that receives the sun. Your hemoglobin molecule has got four pyro, uh, pyrrole structures just in a square shape of just like that with, with a molecule or with an atom of iron in the middle which goes tick-tock into two quantum states. And in the tree, the same thing happens. In the tree, you have two pyrrole structures with a little tail on it and you have manganese in the center that goes tick-tock which receives carbon dioxide out of the air in the presence of water and evolves oxygen and makes sugar to bulk up the tree. So the chemistry is almost identical. You have serotonin on your synapses, so does the tree. So in what has happened in, in life is that my great mentor, E.O. Wilson from Harvard, 
says that we have become unilocular. In, in science, we have taken the minutia and become unilocular. What I like to do is to see the big picture. I like to understand the chemistry, the physiology, the biochemistry of you, which I've studied indeed, and the chemistry and physiology and biochemistry of a tree. So when I go into a forest, if I were to take you into a forest, I see lots of things of the chemistry, of, of the fragrances, of the carrying substances, which are absolutely fantastic. And we have been missing them all along. And that is phenomenal. I, the, the, uh, um, I, it occurred to me that if you could see what's going on in a forest, um, it would be a phenomenal sight, wouldn't it? If yes. You, if you could see the transmissions and the, and the emanations and so on. Yes, be. but the birds do and the animals do and the insects do. And it's mm -hmm. like x-rays. For us, we have radiation from the sun. We have one area of the electromagnetic spectrum coming down and you and I see white light. But there is all kinds of other light. There's ultraviolet light, infrared light. And in fact, there's a new form of light, which is in, in slower down in the, the electromagnetic spectrum, which is light to the power of 15. And that one, our T set, they are our T rays. We actually didn't even know that the T rays existed. The T rays may very well have fundamental um, important effects on all of, of all of life. We have never even known of their existence. The physicists right now are, are busily working on it, but I would suspect that in the next five years, we are going to find some very, very interesting things popping out of this arena of something we never even knew existed. You know, it's, it's, it's the application of science to what you know, and, the, and, and, and it is em empowering yourself to think like Einstein did. Einstein did his, all his thought experiments, which came up with his, some of his wife's research, I admit it, into E equals mc squared, into the enormous energy reaction of, of electron. But in everyday life, we have the leaves of the trees receiving carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere in the presence of that sunlight and evolving oxygen. But that sunlight has fooled us because we thought it came in a straight line. No, it doesn't. It comes in a straight line and it also comes in a sine wave. And if it lands on the leaf of the tree, and this is what fooled Einstein for a long time, he thought this straight light, we know what that is doing. The sine wave light, we really don't know what that is doing. Well, a tree could have told him. In the leaf of the tree, in any leaf, any green, that sine wave material comes right onto the surface of the chlorophyll molecule and excites the metal in the chlorophyll molecule to tick-tock to the, the reaction which we call a thermodynamic reaction. And that thermodynamic reaction pulls in carbon, bonds the carbon into sugar and evolves oxygen. Your life and my life and all the lives of all the creatures on this planet depends on that one reaction. And we do not understand it. That's a sobering, sobering thought. Yeah. It's, one of the things that struck me as I was, as was reading your book was, I know some of these things. You know, in a way, the book made things kind of go click for me in a lot of ways. Like I suddenly realized that you have the whole business of fragrances as a, as a chemical reaction. You have 
colors. You have the and you but you and, and so you have you said at one point the tree is a chemical factory, ah. and then you went on to talk about the ways in which the chemicals that it produced created the conditions that it needed for survival and growth. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, the tree the tree is a mother. Of course, you have male trees, you have female trees. For the most part, you have uh, trees that are female trees or trees that have male and female on the tree. But let's pretend a tree is a mother. That mother looks after its seedlings. Now, let's say the butternut. Here, where we are in Nova Scotia, you have, you have a lot of butternuts. And in fact, you had all kinds of... Your old furniture was made out of this wonderful butternut that lives here. And the butternut does something very cute... The butternut um, grows as a tree. It produces juglone. It produces elagic acid in the growth of the tree, which is a very, very remarkable thing. The juglone, actually, the, the juglone is produced as the tree matures and matru- matures, and you have a wonderful tree that produces nuts that has a husk on the nuts, which incidentally has never been looked at chemically, has never been examined from a scientific point of view. And inside you have this wonderful nut that uh, from, from let's put, divide it into two. One par- part, it lands on the ground and the squirrels come along and they bury the nut. But the tree says, I have so much food in the area around my roots. And the tree says to itself, can I afford to have a daughter or a son here in this area? And if the tree decides to to not, that they do not have enough food in the soil, they will produce juglone in the roots. And the juglone in the roots murders the seedling. And the seedling will not be permitted to grow under the shade of the tree because the mother must survive. However, the demand for these nuts is so great by the squirrel population, the squirrel will run off and he will roll the nut into a hole and bury the nut, roll it in such a way that it is perfect for germination of the radical to go down and the cotyledon to come up, and therefore a forest is made. But for this particular butternut itself, in the production of of its own sobering being, elagic acid is produced. And elagic acid is in the nut itself, which is very attractive to you and to me. That nut itself holds with elagic acid, oleic, linoleic, and linolenic acids, which are the three essential fatty acids for the functioning of the human brain. So when you come along and you crack that nut, because at the Aboriginals considered this to be a very, very important source of food, there was a democracy based on that food, they would crack the nut, eat it, because it tasted so sweet to them and it had elagic acid in it. And elagic acid is a protective chemical which protects the whole human body and it protects you against all of the cancers which are the breaker, the breakers of your genome. They're sly. The trees are sly. <laughs> well, they are. And, and, uh, and that's, a, a, you know, that's a lovely example of, of, in a sense, forcing the children to leave home, right? And, and thus to spread the the forest itself. But then there are also these, and, and one of the uh, one of the things I guess I did know about uh, about the forest is that 
is that there's a whole set of exchanges that take place between the roots through the fungal systems. Ah, yes. Hmm? Ah, yes. Which is another, it's not, it's partly communication, it's partly nutrition, it's a whole, there's a ah, whole yes. kind of activity there. Up to just recently thought in the scientific world that a tree is a tree. Now, let's, let's forget the Druidic culture, let's forget the Aboriginal culture, let's forget all of the people of great wisdoms who knew better than this. Let's pretend they don't exist. For us as scientists, we thought a tree grows and another tree grows and another tree grows. And collectively, we call these trees growing a forest. But there's something else going on in the forest. Within a forest, in the forest floor, we have mycorrhiza. And the mycorrhiza is really a factory. It's a factory of exchange. It's like an underground tube train from one tree to another tree to another tree. And the remarkable thing is with, let's say, trees like hemlocks, a tree like hemlock will grow, and then there is a baby tree of hemlock in its shadow. That mother tree seems to know that there is a baby in its shadow and will start feeding carbon through the mycorrhizal system to that baby. If that tree decides that it wants to have a yellow birch next to it, it will then in turn feed a lot more carbon to the yellow birch to pull the yellow birch up to the top of the canopy. And in fact, there is somewhat of, of, of a protege system going on in the forest by way of feeding on an underground feeding. But this is very, very important for climate change because what it means for the scientific community and the, the community who are studying atmospheric systems, it means that the carbon is locked underground. And when you have a great mycorrhizal system and a, a, a forest floor, we have an awful pile of carbon locked underground with a layer of leaves or a layer of, of leaflets on top of all of that. And we have masses of carbon which is selectively being pulled and selectively being remanufactured by the fungi. And each tree has its own association of specific types of fungi associated with it. And these will feed these young trees and then push them up into growth. You know, we never figured that out 10 years ago. Now we know it. Now we know that our carbon dioxide is increasing and we've got to make a judgment about that. Are we, when we, uh, when we clear cut, when we really demolish the forest and the forest floor, are we releasing the carbon that's locked down there? Ha! Clear cut is an, un an, an unnatural act of man. The act of the planet for, we will call it clear cutting for the time being, is called a burning, mm -hmm. where you have a, a strike of a, a flame out of a thunderstorm where a strike has happened and you get a burn, a natural burn over. A natural burn over locks the carbon to some extent in charcoal, surface charcoal, which is reduced down to potassium hydroxide into the soil, reduction down into the soil, and you actually have a form of sterilization, a surface sterilization of the soil, which selectively points certain weeds to grow. We'll call them weeds or flowers and plants to grow depending that they like alkaline conditions. When they grow up, then, then the acidic neutral condition, neutral first, and acidic conditions start to produce, and then you have a forest re regrowth from that evolving aspens coming in, and then all of the other takeover plants that come in. 
When you clear-cut a forest, you don't give them a chance. When you clear-cut a forest, you actually eliminate. Each tree has got in its possession about 40 insects that are part of the diversity parcel of that tree. Then you have the bird population and the mammal population. There is an overall destruction. It's like a nuclear bomb going off on the face of the earth. And there is no means by way that the mycorrhizal can continue the, the apical feeding of the rootlets under, under the soil. Yeah, there is no carbon change. There is no carbon exchange going on. It is like something that is, you're cut off at your knees and you expect your knees down from your, your feet to walk and to grow and to be like a man. It is an unnatural act. And in fact, some scientific thought should be given to it. We have the faceless names and nameless faces of the corporations wanting these trees because to the corporate world, these trees are the church of the holy dollar. They're going to make those big boys rich, but they're going to make you and I so much poorer. Well, this seems to be a debate that's going on in many, many parts of the country. It's certainly going on here in Nova Scotia. Um, between the idea that you would simply cut on a rotation and you plant you plant a mon- monocultural, you can't call it a forest, but a plantation mm-hmm. of the same types of trees that are good for pulpwood, and every few years you cut them all down again and, and you clear-cut them so nothing else grows. Um, and there's a growing sense around around this province, yeah. among ordinary yeah. people, that this is, is a vast mistake. Um, but there's great opposition to changing it. Well... Can I kind of contradict you a little bit on this one? This is happening in Canada. This is happening, I saw it myself, out on the West Coast last week. It is happening here. To my great disgust, it's happening here in Nova Scotia. And I have seen it in Nova Scotia myself. I've just walked through a primary forest that's under threat, a forest that no sane scientist would give any form of agreement to this forest near Dalhousie uh, Mountain to be cut. It's absolutely ridiculous. But it's happening here. It's happening in in New Zealand. It's happening in Tasmania. It's happening in Victoria. It's happening in Europe. It is now starting to happen in Russia, in the Taiga area of Russia. It is not just happening here. It's down in Borneo. Borneo has been stripped. Malaysia is being kind of careful. But there are all of the main continents of the world are getting stripped. Also, India is being a bit more careful. Pakistan, the floods of Pakistan have occurred because they have already been stripped. And in places like Bhutan, Bhutans are looking after their forests. But it is happening all over the world. But let me just kind of talk about one thing. This is a faceless name and nameless face. This is globalization at its worst. This is people in in the corporate world. It has a pathology about money. And it is the bottom line is the dollar. But they multiply and increase and clone and make very, very large companies that have enormous power, power over you, power over me, but power over our governments. And they're the grey men behind our governments. They're the grey men behind all the government rules all over the world. It is like I scratch your back and you scratch mine. But the scratching of the corporate world is a scratching of money. And it's a huge scratch. And they say to you, the last lot of money that is left in the world is the natural world. We will take all your trees. 
and they will clear cut all our trees or lie about it in some cases, tell the public they want to do this, but in fact they're not, they have a, a hidden agenda underneath here. And what is happening, this is happening all over the world. This is one reason why climate change is, is, is so urgent and it is happening. And they are in some instances responsible for climate change. This mass cutting of the forest. In the global community, we have for one person on the globe as of today, we have approximately one acre of forest to oxygenate that one person. You take your oxygen from the forest, from the great oceans of the sea. We have one acre per one person. We should have two to three to four to five acres per one person to oxygenate because we live in a bell jar. The whole planet is a bell jar. We need that oxygen. I would invite you to stop breathing for the next 20 minutes and see how far you will get in the living process. It doesn't work. They take out our forests. They remove the oxygen for a great number of the people of the planet. And this is the dilemma. The dilemma is really not the carbon dioxide. The carbon dioxide, yes, is a dilemma. It is a fingerprint of the forest going down because the forests have this huge thirst for carbon dioxide. They need it to build their great structures. But if there isn't a forest, there is nothing that will feed the carbon dioxide out of the air. 600 million years ago on the planet, you and I would not live because the whole atmosphere was carbon dioxide. It was loaded with carbon dioxide. Every farmer on this planet can tell you carbon dioxide in his granary will kill him, will kill his mammals, will kill his animals coming in. It would kill you. But at that time, we weren't even extant. The great forests of the world were starting to move into place. And it has taken that 600, 500, 600 million years to pluck the carbon dioxide one atom by one atom, one molecule by one molecule as carbon dioxide out of the air into the green leaves of the great world, into the, into the, into the benthic areas of the ocean, into the methane of the ocean, into the great forested areas of the world, into all of the things of the world that are in the soil. The soil holds lots and lots of carbon and it has graveyard to the carbon and it has made a life it has made the harmony of life for all of us. It is now we're looking at Easter Island. We're looking at cutting down the trees, eliminating the forests. We are producing Easter Island. On Prince Edward Island, there is one forma of the Ulmus Americana left. One tree left of this forma of, of this tree all the fountainhead left on the island. So we're going towards Easter Island. And what is really happening is that you and I are like bees. I don't know if you've kept bees, but a beehive will go as a buzzy bee going off forest, going off foraging for themselves. But the hive acts as, as a warm-bodied creature. You get all the honeybees back into the hive. They're warm-bodied creatures. And we have this funny phenomenon. We, you, I'm going back to the chemistry of pheromones. I'm going back to the chemical communication between you and I and all the other creatures out there. They function in that way. You and I function as a herd also. Remember, we're mammals. And the herd is starting to understand we are in danger. 
were getting in danger and that the the greed index out there is putting all of us and our babies and our babies in the future into danger. And that's what's happening across the world. It's fascinating, isn't it? And there is, you're, you're right, there is this sort of uh, dawning realization that we that this, this can't go on this way. I, one of the numbers that this, this struck me in your writing was that <clears throat> in the 1950s, when I was growing up, we had, what, 25% of the Earth's surface was forested. Yeah. And as of 2005, it was 5%? Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. We're just losing our forests. And like you said, plantations going in are deserts. A plantation mm-hmm. of a Scots pine, I just saw a plantation of a Scots pine. It's a desert. Mm-hmm. There are no birds to be heard in that. And in fact, a plantation of a Scots pine should be in Scotland, should be in the Caledonian area, as you know. And my little area in, 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 in Galway, above Galway, is where the Scots pine comes from and all of the taiga of Russia and all of northern uh, northern Europe. That tree was never meant to be growing here. Mm-hmm. So this is a plantation of, of something that has happened where the birds will come in on our vast migrations into Nova Scotia. They will come in and the warblers come in. The warblers need the essential amino acids out of these trees. And they're not there. The food isn't there. The beneficial insects come in in great numbers. And the beneficial insects need lysine, one essential amino acid for reproduction in the, in the insect world. The trees are natural forest here, supplies lysine. But the, the, all the bees, the honeybees and our, our pollinating bees come in looking for it and it's not here because the forest isn't here. And the, 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 the flowers of the forest floor aren't here. And so we wonder... Why are these bees dying? Because we have pesticide-ridden fields and we have no flowers for them to feed on. It's like sending you out into the the Gobi Desert and if I gave you a message into the Gobi Desert and I said to you, I would like you to bring me back one large gallon of water out of the Gobi Desert, I don't really think you'd succeed. Or even five pounds of meat. Or even five pounds of meat. (laughs) 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 Let me take you back to another uh, thing that you've described, which is the savanna, which I guess was the original configuration ah. of the North American landscape at the f- in pre-European times. Yeah. Can you describe that for me? Oh, that was the genius of the people living here. The Aboriginal world, they had so many, so many extraordinary shaman and so many extraordinary people of wisdom. The great, um, the great savanna was described by the pilgrims as they came in, and they used all the old English to describe it, and they sent the letters home. And they came in, when they came in on the, the, the ship, the, the pilgrims came in on the Mayflower, they described these, and they called it O-A-K-E, O-K, all the O-K forests, but they are the oak forests and the nut forests of, 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 of the whole area that they had come into. And what, it, what, what the Aboriginal people had designed, the Grand Savannah, and the oak forests and all of the nut forests, I'm talking about hickories, shagbark hickories, king nut hickories, black walnuts, were all in this forest, and the canopies had stretched across one another, so a squirrel could run across one lot of canopy into another. But it was a very smart thing to do because we have a 20% higher solar exposure because of the length and height of the continent than any other area on Earth. So we get a lot of sun in America, in North America. And these trees require themselves to have a lot of sun. 
and they stretched in these marvelous huge savannas across the continent and in 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 stretching and doing so they drank the sun because the full green canopy was exposed to the sun and in doing that they produced the the largest amount of nuts and the largest amount of acorns ever possible on a growing tree but the aboriginal people did something awfully smart what they did is they did a fast flash firing in April and another one in November when the ground was very damp and the ground was very wet and the flash firing burnt off all of the so-called weeds and it produced a potassium hydroxide hydroxide ash ash in water produces potassium hydroxide and that is the phosphate and the potash element which was reopened and regenerated for these trees. Nut trees require potash, but the potash around a nut tree also reduces predation and disease within the nut itself, within the nut tree itself. So what they did is they had their own fungicidal system going, they had their own system of management of the soil going, and they had a system where the trees really became magnificent in their growth. But that did something else. What that did is it increased a hundredfold all of the nuts, all of the acorns, all of the sweet Quercusalba, the white acorns, the bur oaks, all of those all across the continent. But it fed the mice and the rats and the mammals and the bigger mammals up into the wolves and then the wolves into the bears and from the bears then into the deer. It increased the deer population by 100% for hunting so smart yeah. and if you'd been walking through that forest it would have been fairly open at the yes. ground is that right? Yes. You, so you'd have, been, you'd have been almost park-like in a sense so. yes and that's where Repton um, in, the, or in early English times that's where Repton got his ideas for Capability Brown too and Repton for all of the great landlords who owned the, the, the woods or thought they owned the woods indeed they did cut them down of England mm. of, of North America I mean they were living in England and then they decided they would put in their reptonial parks and their capability brown parks where all the trees were like this. But there was one thing that North America had that England didn't have. We have in all of our trees two, two compounds called quercetin and quercitrin. And these are, trees, these are compounds that are sunscreen compounds within the cambial tissue of the tree, like it's in all of the skin, the surface skin of the tree, and it is capable of withstanding excessive ultraviolet radiation. Mm -hmm. That doesn't happen over in England. Hmm. Hmm. And the result of that is? The result of that is more nuts. (laughs) (laughs) More harvest, greater harvest, greater success. Now, how did you get... It's such a um, profound understanding of Aboriginal practices and Aboriginal life and Aboriginal thought. Because it really does, it, it's woven right uh, through your work. Yes, it? it is, yes. Well, I will have to admit something to you. By the time I was 11 years old, I was made an orphan. My family were decimated in a car crash. And on my mother's side, I am an aristocrat from the Irish, old Irish world. And on my father's side, I'm an English aristocrat from the Beresfords, 
and that is an old, old English family from the 12th century. And so what happened to me is that the judge, I was an orphan, the judge was afraid to put, I only discovered this about three years ago, was afraid to put a, a little girlie into a laundry orphanage, which was run by nuns, and I would be a Beresford, an aristocratic, the granddaughter of Lord William Beresford. I would be washing the underwear and the shirts and the sheets of the city of Cork. And that poor man was afraid to put me there because there might be later repercussions. So he called me into his chambers, which is very, this is very unusual, and apparently it's even unusual to this day. He called me into his chambers and he said, do you want to go to your aunt, who is in England? And my aunt was very, very wealthy, very, very, very wealthy. Or my uncle, who was a bachelor and was very as poor as a church mouse. So who do you want to go to? And I said, I would rather stay with my uncle, live with my uncle, because if I went with my aunt, I would be a servant in the house. And he said, OK, I've made my decision. You've made the decision for me. And my uncle adopted me, well, it is, into a wardship. And for three years, I had, from 11, for three, the next three years, I was in, the, the court case was being sorted out for that period of time. So I was in a wardship of that time. And my mother's family were Gaelic speakers. My mother's family went into action on all the 80-year-olds and the 90-year-olds in the south of Ireland, near a place called Caelkill. They took me under their wardship. And it was the wardship of the Brehan system. And Ireland in the olden times had a jurisprudence called the Brehan Laws. And they predate the Magna Carta and the Napoleonic Code. And I was taught all the Druidic culture, all the cures, all the identification of meditation, the alignments of meditation. I was taught all of the importance of trees, of nature. I was brought into nature. I was taught all of the things that they told me I needed as a woman for my protection. They said into the new world. And they told me I would be their last child, their last ward, and that I would be the last voice of, of the ancient people of Ireland, the ancient Celtic world of Ireland and they told me I, there would be no more after me I would receive this knowledge and I had to carry forth that knowledge and you know when you're a child you don't think that's very important you don't think it's very important I did think it was important but the, the depth of its importance I didn't understand these people spoke the Gaelic language and they had Greek and Latin in their houses they were very poor I'm talking mm -hmm. poor people mm -hmm. Um, but they were extraordinary spiritual people. They were extraordinary people. And I never thought it would affect me. And the older that I grow, the bigger the gift that they gave me. They have taken me and they have wrapped me in the Druidic system and in the old system of the old times. And now there are all kinds of strange things emerging to protect me in this system. And it is from that system some of the wisdom is in that book. You must find this, um, the world of science, must have been very alien for you. Oh, I love science. Science is black and white. The, the search for knowledge. The search for knowledge, the search for wisdom. 
and the uncle who, uh, who, who raised me, really, he was a man of books. He was a scholar. He was an athlete. He played. He was capped for Ireland for hurling. That's our national game in Ireland, for hurling three times. He was a marvellous, marvellous athlete, but the whole house was lined with books. There was at least 10,000 books in that house. And every evening he'd sit on one side of the fire, I'd sit on the other. He'd read physics to me and I'd read chemistry to him, or Irish poetry back and forth, or the classics, or Tyre de Chardin, or all of the old Greek things to one another. For all of my life that I knew him, this happened. But he practiced two religions. On the outside, he was a Catholic, and inside the house, he was a Buddhist. So he did all the Buddhist alignments inside the house. So yeah, this is why I'm so confused. <laughs> or, or why your outlook is so all-embracing. But I was thinking, it, it, the, the way you speak about this is not the way that scientists normally speak. And in fact, I suspect you've had a fair amount of uh, flack from, from the scientific community. Oh, yes, for, I have, for, just recently. Yeah. Um, this this new book that has just come out on the shelves called Arboretum Borealis, The Lifeline of the Planet. I was ad- asked to address the Assembly of First Nations and indeed it was a great honour to uh, address the Assembly of First Nations which was absolutely magnificent. Um, there was this huge assembly of people and all of the children were at the back of, of this great round table and um, that gave me the first kind of thumbprint and then I was asked to be a keynote speaker at one of the universities, the northern universities, and I heard them talking about the boreal forest and I heard them talking about cutting the last great 50% of the last great forest on the planet and I thought I don't really understand what's going on here. Warehouser and all of these big boys were all in the front and Greenpeace and all of the Greens were there in the front. And I looked at them and I thought, well, they're not flinching around. What's going on? Did I hear cutting, the word cutting? And I thought, no, maybe I'm dreaming. And then it was repeated. And I thought, no, 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 no. So I went up to and manned the mic, went up to the microphone, and it was open to the floor. And I thought, well, I'm a keynote, so at least I can say something. And I said, no, you can't cut down the boreal forest. It is, this is an act of ethnic cleansing for all of the Cree and the Athabascan people, all of the North, all of the Northern people of the world. You can't do that. And as I was speaking, a member of, of one of the Northern nations came up, it was a woman. She came up and stood behind me and took the microphone from my, my hand. And she said to the audience, this woman speaks with one voice with us. And you could hear a pin drop. And I went home and I was really beside myself. I thought, what can I do to educate the public, to tell them the importance of the boreal forest? What? Because most of us will never go there. How can I tell them it's so important without even talking about it? How can I do this? And I got the idea of writing a sister book, that's Arboretum Borealis, which is a sister book to Arboretum America, and writing it in a way that we understand that if that forest comes down, the great whales will die of the oceans. All of the mammals of the sea will go. And I wrote that book, but it was at Berkeley. Berkeley was desperate for this book. They didn't want me using the word sacred. They told me, we're talking about science here, sacred and science do not go together. We do not like the image of sacred with science together. 
So I sat on it for two months and I thought, no. I phoned them up. I thought, you're not going to compromise my principles. Sacred and science, in fact, do go together. They have always gone together. I have understood them as a unity from, the, from, from being tutored as a t- child of 12 about the Druidic system and the Brehan system and the Brehan laws. And you're not going to take that away from me. So I thought, even if I have to burn this book in my wood stove, which I was prepared to do, mm-hmm. take a good box of matches and burn it, no, you are not going to tell. You are not going to tell me what and what is not sacred. So that was 11 o'clock. I said to them, I phoned them, I said, I want the book back. And they said, there are lots of, we have had patent lawyers looking at this book, and there are lots of very, very important ideas in this book. And I said, I guess you've lost them, haven't you? <laughs> because there is sacred in science. And by 2 o'clock that day, I had another publisher. Good for you. So you stick to your guns. (laughs) Yes, I have had flack, yes, and that is one, an example of one piece of flack. And they had a reception for me in Berkeley, and it turns out that, should I say this, the creationist money are behind some of these things in the law courts. Mm -hmm. And they they wanted to drag me in. They wanted me to give a mathematical reasoning for God based on fractile mathematics. And I thought, no. Your university is full of really smart people. You've got mathematicians, you've got physicists. Drag them out. Let them put their tenure on the counter and see whether they'll stand up with their real ideas. Because I've just done it with my book. Let's see if you boys will stand up for what you believe. So there's my flack. So we're waiting. (laughs) (laughs) And you're right. You're right in that... um, you have to believe in something and you have to stand with what you believe and science doesn't answer everything Mm. we really need the answers to black matter to dark matter which isn't there most of the universe is composed of dark matter even Stephen Hawkins comes up with all kinds of innovative thinking and it is innovative thinking on the origins of life but he doesn't really know he's doing a best guess and we're all doing a best guess. It is the accuracy of science is yes or no. The accuracy of science is like, is like art. It has its own beauty in a sense. And truth has beauty. And sometimes you run with a hunch and you're right. And sometimes you run with a hunch and you're wrong. But the wrong, the no's are sometimes just as important as the rights. And anybody, any scientist who's got, a, who's got any guts... You've got to face yourself sometimes, and for weeks after week after week, you get negative answers. Well, so, but we can't be pushed by the government, and we should have tenure, and we should have our kids um, looking at, at research, and we should have a bit more money coming into the research systems, because we've got too many important questions to be laid out on the carpet for all of us to all of the scientific community and the community in general to answer these questions because we've got one big one in front of us and it's called climate change. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, your, your, your sense that the sacred and the scientific are, are a unity, um, you know, that's always been there in some of the greatest scientists. I mean, I think Einstein said that his life's work was to understand the secrets of the old man, you know? That's and, right. Uh, and yet, somehow that's, that's right. been just erased from the scientific enterprise for you know, most of what you see. In, in that's right. And, and, and Einstein was an extraordinary humanist. He, mm. As he grew older, his love for the universe 
expanded at a tremendous rate. And these were his thought experiments. He was an extraordinary individual. He could put ideas together, flank them together in physics. I mean, his first papers were ignored for a year. I mean, la, la, la. Einstein's papers were not even noticed until he become, became published. Somebody noticed that his ideas were very important. And as he grew older, his, his understanding of, of the divinity of mathematics expanded. And the, the universe is based on a mathematical formula. It is, it, is, it is in you, it is in me, it is in all things living. And we really don't understand that. And in the formula of the divine, in the formula of the sacred, there is that mathematical thread that runs through everything. And it is there. And we have to push ourselves to understand it. And the ancients knew as that as the sacred thing. And indeed, the sacred thing can be pulled into, in, in some senses, like a taboo system. Like, for instance, in, in the old Catholic Church in Ireland, the name of Mary, the mother of God, is called Mwira. M-U with a length on it, I-R-E. And that is Mwira. No female child in Ireland or in your country or anywhere is called Mwira. It is a sacred word for a sacred person that we respect in her divinity. She did exist. We respect that. The, the moniker for Mwira is Mary or Maureen. Mary or Maureen. Maureen means Mary, little Mary, actually. The Ean is little Mary. So Moira, M-A, with the length on the A, I-R-E, is Mary. It is sacred thinking. We have to have some sacred thinking. In it. We have to respect the sacredness of thinking in our lives. And the Church of the Holy Dollar makes one swipe of that out of our lives. Yeah. And we can't have that. I don't honestly think that as a human race we can survive without this pushing people sometimes to have respect, pushing people sometimes to have compassion, pushing them to pull a bit of money out of their pocket and say, well, yes, this needs AIDS. The children in Africa are dying. AIDS needs research. We, we have to have this common humanity. And if we don't have it through the taboo system of the Muslim world or any religion, if we, we have to be put in the bars of this because some of us become too greedy. We become the faceless names and nameless faces of this world that they will not allow you even to have a holiday. And we are thinking beings. We are thinking creative, extraordinary, extraordinary beings. And we have a spirit and a soul. And do we always have to live to the end of our days to gather that small bit of wisdom to carry into our grave? I don't think so. Yeah, now, something else that comes up in your work and, is, and that I think is tremendously encouraging is you have some real some serious thoughts about what individual people can do in the face of what you know, we recognize to be a whole linked set of environmental um, oh, yes. issues, catastrophes, whatever. And I'm thinking particularly of things like the bioplan. Ah, Tell oh, me about yes. the bioplan. Well, you see, I do believe that if we created it, we can fix it. All of us. It's not just me. 
Now say that again, because that's something I think that we need to have firmly I on the record. I do believe that if we created it, we can fix it. Repeat again. <laughs> I do believe that if we created it, we can fix it. I alone can't fix it. But all of us created it. All of us allowed it to happen. Then all of us will allow it to be fixed. And we are all party to the fixing. Now, with regard to the bioplan, my concept of the bioplan is that if Mary owns a house and she has a husband and she has her two children, she can, around her house, plant a tree. She can, a native tree to her area, she can, around her house, plant a garden, a native garden to her area. And in doing that, all of the Marys of the world will join hands. And the bird populations in the city, in urban areas, will have a tree to land on, a tree to perch on, and a tree to feed off. So that's one thing in which we can hold hands. Birds also need other things. Bird needs to have sunshine, vitamin D on their skin. They need to actually have a limb to perch on because the vitamin D on their skin is a deoxy form of vitamin D on their skin. It needs sunlight to land on the bird. It forms a vitamin D on their skin itself and the birds peen themselves. You see the birds always peening themselves. They're ingesting the vitamin D. The vitamin D goes into their system. It is absolutely necessary for successful egg laying. Without the vitamin D, you will not have viable eggs. So Mary has done something by having her tree. And as a matter of fact, let me side sidestep for, an, for, for one second. You and I need vitamin D. And you and I need to expose our, our, our skin to the sun too for 15 minutes or so every day to have our vitamin D, because without our vitamin D, we too will not have our health. Most people shower three and four or five times a day, washing off the vitamin D off their skin, thinking they're going to be healthy. So there is another little kind of sidetrack. We're back to, to the bioplan. In the bioplan itself, the farmer, the farming community, the farming community is on its knees. The farming community desperately needs help. Within the farmers are of all peoples of the earth. They are the ones most capable and most able to grow things. So are the foresters, but I'm speaking about the farmers right now. There is a lot of vacant land in Canada, I know, and in the rest of the world. So if the farmer were to put in an area of, let's say, five acres, of trees on their farm, then they are adding to the decarbon dioxidation of the planet. So that is one way of carbon sequestration. But the farmer can do something else. He can maybe in his farm put up one, let's talk about one black walnut, and I will talk for Canada for the Thomas type of black walnut. So it's Juglans, Nigra, Thomas. That black walnut, if it's looked after properly, will grow in his lifetime to produce enough money for his children's education. It will be sold at auction for about $60,000, $60,000, that's six and a zero, because there isn't enough black walnut in the world for veneer. It forms a black wood. Everybody 
all the designers are looking for this. It is, there is an enormous demand for black walnuts for the nuts themselves, for the shells themselves actually, for a form of sandblasting, for the wood itself. So one tree, maybe he puts in 20. One tree, if it's looked after, will look after, will beat any mutual funds he has in the bank. So we start with that. Then, let's say he decides he lives in a more calcareous area and he wants to put in maybe five acres of some oak, mixed oak, with other things. The white oak here, with climate change increasing, there are more wines. Everybody's growing wine. We're all drinking a bit more. Maybe you're not, maybe I'm not. Maybe we're being perfect (laughs) and drinking tea. (laughs) But but the um, the farmer can sell He can sell some or all or put aside some of the white oak for casks for for actually handling wine and handling whiskies. We're importing. We're importing our own oak right now. We're importing the oak for our wine industry. I mean, we're screaming for oak. We're cutting down oak where it shouldn't be cut. So why can't we say to our farmers, well, okay, you farmers, you, you grow some. We will guarantee your price, and it goes into the general market. Then there's another problem I have in the bioplan. If you and I are going to continue to use paper, we must find an alternative for the tracheide. And this is where Canada is is all important, because there's slow growing in Canada. All of this, really, from the south of Canada up to the north, it's very, very, the wood is very slow growing, but that produces an excellent tracheide in the wood. And that excellent tough tracheide is what makes the best paper in the world. So what I say is you get the, 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 the farmer to grow five acres of hemp. This was part of an experiment a number of years ago. And you design an, uh, a machine for baling that hemp, but the machine has to have compounds, polar compounds going through it to wash off the hemp to some extent so it can be baled. This is very simple from an engineering point of view. Bale the hemp, send it to your mills, send it to your, 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 your timber mills and make paper out of it. Mm-hmm. It grows on nothing. It grows without fertilizer. It grows, more importantly, without pesticides. It'll grow extrom- extremely tall and then have a market, have a cooperative market for, for hemp and get the hemp into the mills and get the mills retting it for paper. Then if you want to have an eternal form of paper, get all of the bark off the basswoods that are being cut, keep that bark aside and boil that bark, which is not difficult to do from an engineering point, point of view. It becomes super, super strong bark like steel. Put that in with it. Then you have eternal paper. You have a paper that can actually be recycled and recycled and recycled. So that book and these books and that bit of paper and all the paper around us has an eternal form. Maybe it can be used for 20 uses. But let us use our heads. We don't have to cut down the forest to to make paper. We, we have to attend to the farmers. We have to attend to other things if we are going to live in some form of harmony. We can use our brains for these things. And the bio plan, as you, as you, as you perceive it, has this kind of community dimension where it involves the farmers and, and, the, and indeed the, the paper mills. But, but it's also very personal. It's, very, it's, it's Mary and her tree and, her yeah. and, and the local birds. 
And you also see it as having, um, with that kind of deliberate thought, a way of developing corridors for wildlife and bird life as they as they as they migrate, right? So that my little piece of bioplant land is contiguous with yours and on exactly. so on down across the landscape. Exactly, yeah. it's very simple. It's just so simple. You wonder why didn't I think about it before now? Mm-hmm. And and really, it develops community. And if we are going to deal with climate change, one thing we are going to have to have is community. Mm-hmm. I and mean, we're going to have to have community again. Where I live around Ottawa, there is no community left. But we have to generate more community, even if there is some some catastrophe of some kind. Like I'm talking about maybe the avian flu coming and returning and, and remutating, and, and are the retroviruses re redoing their system because they are capable of gene injections. So it it is floating out there in the air. And if we do have something like this happening, or maybe super toxic tides is another one with neurotoxins running on them, we do need to have a community. I do need to know about you as a neighbor. Even though I may fight like blazes with you, I need to know who you are. It is very important. One of the things that has come up in one after another of these interviews is exactly the point you're making that you know that we cannot resolve these problems as individuals. We can only resolve them, you know, as communities and in these countries and as human beings working together around the world. There is no there is no individual fix for any of this. Yes, and uh, and as a matter of fact, uh, we need to do one more thing. I think, and I really don't talk about it a lot in the global forest, is we need to be rich in what we do not want. We need to start thinking that way. We need to start buying. We do not, as a, as a society, have the money to buy garbage. We have to start looking at quality. And looking at quality brings the artisans back into our life, bringing the beauty of all of their fine works. Mm-hmm. And have something... My grandfather, apparently, had a pair of shoes that lasted... Was, they were made for him on a lath that lasted 25 years. Well, why can't we have something like this again? Working shoes, decent clothes, handmade clothes. I mean, that is one thing. Can We can be rich in what we do not want. Another thing we can do is maybe go vegetarian two days a week. Mm-hmm. We have absolutely extraordinary cookbooks out there. We can make delicious food. And we, we have the multicultural aspect of the whole world now, Indian food, all the foods from all over the world. We can learn from all these cultures and produce absolutely gorgeous dishes with maybe a salad on the side. And there's nothing wrong with that two days a week. So that reduces the use of, of beef in that, the world. That's such a simple idea, but it's such a powerful one that you don't have to become vegetarian universally, that yeah. you can do it two days a week. Two days a week. <laughs> and two days a week makes a huge difference. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And it's, and it's not painful. It's not a... It's no, in fact, it might fatten you up even a little yeah. bit because some of these wonderful cookbooks that are out there with these marvelous... We have all kinds of spices that, I mean, that we've never had before. I remember in as a child in in Ireland walking down McCurtain Street and looking in, in the grocery store and seeing a pepper for the first time and it was displayed as an item on the grocery store all by itself on this little kind of vase that held it up and I remember standing in front of it and thinking oh my that must be a pepper (laughs) well 
you know, it's a long journey this year. I've harvested all my peppers out of the garden. Mm. And it's, it's, we are more rich in all of the things we know how to grow. And all we have to do is do it. All we have to do is just tumble them together. And the men know how to cook now. So there's a little bit of blackmail you can use in the household. And you can get very tired as a woman one night and say, well, okay, take the pots and pans out and do it. So it becomes fun, is what I'm saying, in a living situation. And to do that, and also to have natural products around the home. This is something that really that really worries me quite a bit, is this, is this bisphenol scare um, is something that is actually is actually really the tip of the iceberg. In a lot of the modern synthetics that we have, they are gassing off all the time, and the gassing off material within the home is happening with dishwashers, for instance. The dishwashers are actually humidifying the air and and aiding the gassing off of, of synthetic compounds into the air, which is really not very good for children. As children are very young, they have a very high metabolic rate, and they will actually take in a lot of these bisphenol compounds into their body. And it is a molecular toxin. It is a molecular pesticide for children. And it is something that, as they grow older, their immune system is weakened by this. And it becomes maybe a possible form of cancer or some other dreaded form of disease for them. Diana, this has been absolutely wonderful. I really appreciate that you're able to come and be with us. And I wonder if before we wrap it up, if I could get you maybe to just read a little bit from the book for us. It would be my delight to do that. This drifter was the Shanachi or traditional storyteller. He was the keeper of legends and oral traditions of his Irish brethren. They were passed down within his family lines to share with all who would hear. He was the living memory bank of his race. He was the one. The Shanachi was the most important visitor to the farmhouse. All else came after him in the pecking order. His voice held the mystery of life itself and his riddles encased them in that ancient throne of Gaelic wisdom. When he was fed and settled by the turf fire, the hills emptied to his heels. The local farmers came smelling of sweet hay and freshening cows with rod and perch in their brains. The mountain people came through the half door with a, willi- with a windy billow of an Irish poem, they all came. They always stayed because the night, that night, would be so sweet. The Shanachie began like a wet dog, rounding his backside in the three-time circle of the wolf. He threw his idea as a refrain into the flames for it to float around, to be chewed upon, to be thought about and finally to be digested. The idea was always short, sometimes in Gaelic, sometimes not. The words were carefully fed out as the backside settled into its stride, forming the short refrain. This piece was passed along from person to person in the wonder of itself, like an echo of the past into its own domain. And then the story began. So each One of my stories is presented to you first as a refrain 
This is for thought. Ideas are the food of the mind. Thoughts and ideas beget curiosity. Then my story begins. There are 40 of them. Each is in an essay form. Combined, they are called the global forest. Each leaf of every tree makes up the global forest. This forest is the environment that drives and fulfills the dream of each leaf in a vast rhythmic cycle called life and nothing is outside. We are all of it in a unity that transcends the whole. Maybe, just maybe, this resonates of God. For if that is so, then we are all his children. Every earthworm, every virus, mammal, fish and whale, every fern, every tree, every man, woman and child. One equal to another again and again and again. Lovely, lovely. Thank you so much. Let me. You were. May I ask you, may I ask you for one more? Yes, <laughs> you may. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> was, um, and this was one I just thought was just it was just such a beautiful little little description, and it's it's only short. It's just a, it's just a paragraph, but I thought it was just a stunning piece of writing. Mm-hmm. This is from the trees and the forests of the world exist in God, the paranormal. She walked out of the kitchen door, closing it against the lullaby of a little life. She quickly passed the perennial border to her border to her left, glancing at it while she pulled on each glove. The flowers were opening their petals in a yawn of fragrance, getting ready for the business of bees. A stray moth moved like a moat of pleasure. The spider webs gleamed in tiny gems of crystalline water in catchment caves near the rich earth. The line of espaliered apples pointed the way to the trees of the forest. The remarkable Diana Beresford Kroger. After listening to her and reading her, I suspect that every one of us will have a fresh, rich view of the extraordinary complexity of the many lives of a living forest. If you found this interview stimulating, I suspect you'll also enjoy our interview with Bridget Stutchbury on the songbirds which are such a glorious feature of forest life, and also our interview with Satish Kumar, the Anglo-Indian editor, philosopher, and advocate of what he calls reverential ecology. For The Green Interview, I'm Silver Donald Cameron. See you next time.